Lord is God, and he has, he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, and that would have been up to the temple mount. And now this part, the king and the people say together, and this is the final chorus, so you'll stand, and we will say this with the king. Let's go. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, oh, give, give thanks, thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his, his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, you may be seated. Liana, hang around for just another minute. All right, the Old Testament Psalms are actually several different collections of, of songs. And one of those collections is this song, this psalm is part of one of those collections. It's often called the Egyptian Halal, which means praise. And it's Psalm 113 through 118. Almost all interpreters think of this psalm as a call and response song, but they don't universally agree on what parts belong to who. There's a lot of agreement, but we have, we've just taken one person's interpretation and broken it up into what the call and response might have been and what each part, who played each part. It was used in the celebration of festivals and particularly the Passover celebration. So the Jews had a number of festivals that they celebrated, seven uh, probably, and three of those festivals were called pilgrim festivals, and that means from all over Israel, they would travel to Jerusalem for these special high and holy holidays, and, and the holiest and highest of those was Passover. Many who've studied this psalm believe that it may have been written around the time of the exile. You don't need to remember all of this, but that was a time when, when Israel was ransacked taken to Babylon, and then when they came back to, Babylon, uh, to Israel, that was called the time of the exile. Some believe that this psalm was written during that time, and it would have been especially celebrated initially during the festival of booze or the festival of tabernacles, where, where they would, as part of their celebration, they, they made booze out of palm branches. So you can understand how that might have uh, been associated with this psalm, but certainly in the later centuries, it was celebrated during, it was sung during Passover celebrations. This psalm was also expectant as well as commemorative. I like that. That means that it not only looked back commemoratively, remembering what God had done in the past, but it was expectant looking forward. And I'm going to quote from one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, a guy named Motyer, and he says this, uh, but it also looked forward to a coming one about whom all its details would yet be true. So let me walk quickly through a couple of details in the psalm. Uh, in, in verse 5, uh, we're using the English Standard Version this morning. Often here at Gateway, the, we use the New International Version. The English Standard Version in verse 5 says, Out of my despair, the king said that. The New, Inter, uh, the New International Version translates that anguish. And this is an intensified form of the verb here. It's, it's intense anguish. It's also interesting that the word itself, that word anguish in Hebrew, and this was written in Hebrew, it expresses something like pressure or constriction, external pressure and also internal pressure. You know, the anxiety, the, the pressure that I feel. It's fascinating that the word is contrasted in verse 5 with the word set me free. So in answer to prayer, 
we are set free. And literally what it says in the Hebrew is, you set me in a wide place. I'm no longer constricted. Verses 10 through 13, this applies to the king, of course, but also to any other individual during a time of attack because we're all invited to put ourselves into the voice of the psalm and the psalms in general. And then in verse 14, this oppressed one, the king, is delivered because of the Lord's strength. And this is one of the points of the psalm. Uh, God delivers him because it's what God does. He, of course, the king participated in that deliverance. You heard it when Liana read it. She said several times, and I cut them off. But ultimately, the, the king, of course, knows that it's God's strength that did this. Verse 15, the result of that activity is glad songs of salvation. The NIV, I like this one, translates that with shouts of praise and victory. And then in verses 17 and 18, thanks, Pete, for having that up. Look at verse 17 and 18. This is the king standing outside the gate still, call and response, and the king reads this. And think about that in light of Jesus. I shall not die, but I shall live. Recount the deeds of the Lord. Then verse 24, I really love this. That, that New Testament scholar, uh, J.A. Motyer, he said this about the day. This is the day the Lord has made. Sometimes we do that here on Sunday morning. I'll have you say, this is the day the Lord has made, and the other person will say, let's rejoice and be glad in it. This is what Motyer said about that. The day, the day when, when one prayed under extreme pressure and faced all odds, confident in God, verses 5 through 7. The day, the day when he met and overcame the massed forces of the world, verses 10 through 12. The day, the day when he experienced the hostility of a single foe, because verse 13 is singular, and, and came forth singing and victorious, verses 13 and 14. The day when he came out alive from deadly threat and the Lord's chastening, verses 17 and 18, and in full personal righteousness, came through the gate and into the presence of God, verses 19 through 21. The day, the day when the rejected stone became the cornerstone, verse 22. Certainly a day of days in the creative hand of Almighty God. Then in verse 27, I understand that this is very, very difficult Hebrew, and it has resulted in very, very different translations. If you go home this afternoon and look up on Bible Gateway or somewhere, uh, verse 27 of Psalm 118, you'll find <laughs> some wildly different translations of this. The NIV has this, with bows in hand, join the festal procession. But it has a little footnote in the NIV, and it gives you an alternate reading, which is, bind the festal sacrifice with ropes. Uh, the English Standard Version goes with that idea. The one we read, it says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Again, my, my, one of my favorite uh, Old Testament scholars, he, he translates it this way, prepare the sacrifice for the feast. So think of that idea related to Jesus. Think of preparing the sacrifice for the feast. In other words, on that first Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, this is the song that they sang when Jesus was outside Jerusalem about to enter the gates. This was the song. And, and as they were singing his praises that day, as they were singing his praises, they were in effect preparing him for sacrifice. All right, so let's do it again. Psalm 118, now you've done it before, you're ready. Uh, you are the uh, choir. Um, Liana is playing the part of the king, and I am the omnipotent narrator. 
Let's go from the top. Stand with me, and we'll do the first chorus together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That's great. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, you may be seated. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went on out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of the righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Javen, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And now all of us. You, you are, are my God, God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the biographies, they, they, they tell about this time during Jesus' public ministry, this last time when he came to Jerusalem, he was greeted by this large and enthusiastic crowd. And this, was, this had to be very surprising for the disciples because during the immediately preceding days, Jesus had concentrated exclusively on teaching the small company of the twelve and, and others gathered around. Plus, there was a dramatic increase in the opposition against Jesus on the part of people like the Pharisees leading up to this point. Uh, there were certainly those who were very close to Jesus. Some of them, like the disciples, had devoted considerable time to following him. And some of them had devoted their entire lives to his teaching by this point. They believed he was something extraordinary. And this, this first Palm Sunday, th this whole experience must have been very confirming for them. So let's call them the all-in crowd. So there was the all-in crowd. There were also more casual admirers in the crowd. They, they were probably people from Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee, and they would have heard about him. Maybe they had seen him teach or perform miracles. They wanted to see and hear more. They were probably hoping for some amazing miracles while they were in Jerusalem. Let's call them the looky-loos. Do you all know that term? I don't know if that's a southern term, but uh, this is when you're, when you're uh, driving down the highway and you know, you're rubbernecking to see an accident. My mother used to always call those looky-loos. They want to say, what's, going, what's happening? What's happening? And the looky-loos would have been looking for, what's he going to do? What, I've, heard, I've heard of Jesus, what's he going to do? And then there were certainly zealots in the crowd. They were people who were conspiring against Roman occupation. They would have hoped that the time had come for Jesus to raise an army, to, to overthrow Rome. 
Actually, they were looking for anyone to do this. Jesus was just the latest candidate. Let's call them the alternate agenda crowd. They wanted to see Jesus do something. But it was something he had no intention of doing. This was not his mission. There were also casual critics, no doubt. These were the sophisticated, world-weary skeptics. They would have stood on the edges of the crowd with their arms folded, saying things like, well, you don't see this every year. They would have smirked at all of the enthusiasm and thought of this as mostly foolishness. We'll call them the casual critics. They were the crowd that had been there, done that. More of the same, this was their attitude. And finally, there were enemies of Jesus. They saw him as a threat to the status quo, to their position. Most of them saw him as a threat to their understanding of God even. And he was. They, they were mostly, uh, these were mostly people who, they knew the Old Testament the best. They were the ones that, that should have been able to recognize Jesus, but they didn't. We'll call them the religious professionals. They just couldn't see it. Why? Well, what's going on here? Who is this? The crowd began to murmur, and then someone answered, this is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth in, in Galilee. I wonder, which one of these groups do you think the uh, typical Northern Virginia suburbanite was standing with? <laughs> probably not the religious professionals. You know, they're, they're probably, our neighbors are probably not enemies of Jesus. They don't want to crucify Him. Uh, we, may, we may even claim to believe in Jesus. Also, probably, if we're honest, probably not the all-in crowd, given that less than 22% of us are in church on an average Sunday morning, and far fewer of us have a real spiritual posse that is involved in our lives. Probably most of us are not in the all-in crowd. Uh, we're maybe somewhere in the middle, don't you think? Looky-loos. Uh, Easter's coming up. Maybe we should go to church. What's that? What are they doing? So, they're doing something for kids over there at that Gateway Community Church. What are they doing? What's going on? What, 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 what's happening? There probably are many of us who, and our neighbors, who are in the alternate agenda crowd, don't you think? Uh, some of us who think, Come on, Jesus was so compassionate, he was really a, a, an ancient communist. He would, be, he, would be, he would be taking care of the most vulnerable and the most unfortunate. Or exactly the opposite, right? Those of us who are conservative Christians, and emphasis on conservative. Or maybe the agenda is more personal. Maybe it's, I, I, I want the perfect... Uh, family and the, and the perfect kids. And, and I, if I check all the boxes, God, you're going to do that for me, right? Or uh, certainly some of us are in the casual critic crowd. And I remember I was in high school. I went to a religious camp. Been there or done that. Where are you on that spectrum of response? Uh, next week and, and, and this week, we're going to spend some time together kind of talking about the basics of, of what we believe as Christians. And today is one of those days. Uh, I believe this is the most critical question for all of us in all our lives. Who is this man? 
Some of you grew up in non-religious environments. I've talked to a couple of you over the last few weeks. You, you may have thought of religion as certain exercises that, you, that somebody has to perform, uh, and you probably don't see the point. You need to know that Jesus kind of agrees with you. Uh, he didn't really see the point of some of those exercises either. He introduced us to a new way. Actually, I think more accurately, it's, it's better to say he reintroduced us to a very old way. It's been God's way from the beginning. The key is not a bunch of re religious exercises that we have to do. The key is a real connection with God, a relationship with God. Now, let me explain it like this. Someone once asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Maybe honor the Sabbath. We've got, we've got thousands of little commandments that help us to honor the Sabbath. Surely that's a big one. Or maybe it's, uh, and they did. Or maybe it's honor your father and mother. You know, our families are critically important to us culturally, traditionally. We've got hundreds of, of little commandments that help us honor father and mother. Maybe it's that, but Jesus said, no, no. It's love God and love others. He went further and he said, you know, pretty much everything that God has said can be summarized in those two things. In other words, it's all about relationship with God and with others. And, and here's the thing. Uh, you have to choose this. It's not casual. You, you have to choose him. You have to choose loving him. You have to choose learning to hear from him. You have to choose learning to follow him. You have to choose it. I know some of you grew up Catholic or Orthodox. I've met a few newer folks at Gateway over the last few weeks who have, and, and I've, I've told each of you, don't worry, you're right at home. There are a bunch of you here, and there are, who grew up Catholic and Orthodox. And if you've been around Gateway long enough, you know that I'm a great admirer. Uh, some of you know I, I regularly, uh, two to four times a year, I'll, I'll spend a week at a monastery. Uh, and the, especially Catholic Theology has, has um, uh, spirituality has, has made an impression on my life, positively so. I've had leaders who've been around Gateway for a long time who accuse me of being a Catholic, but I'm not. I'm not for some obvious theological reasons. Also, my wife Diane would be hard to explain if I were. But I'm, 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 I'm not a Catholic in part because of this. I think this is one of those things that, that Protestants get very well, some Protestants. Let me explain this. Uh, you, have to, you have to say yes. You have to say, I believe. I've had many folks over the years, some of you tell me, you know, I think I've always believed. Growing up in a Christian tradition, growing up in a Christian home makes you a Christian about as much as being in a garage makes you a car. You have to choose this for yourself. You have to say, oh my goodness. My, my, my life is not what God wanted. My life is not even what I wanted. I'm so sorry, Lord. I recognize what you have done. I believe that story. I'm in. In fact, I'm all in. You have to choose this. You have to say yes to this. What do you think of this man? Let me explain briefly, and then we'll end. What Jesus' followers told us about him. So based on his life and based on his claims, they realized two profound things about Jesus. If you, if you miss everything else, don't miss this this morning. 
The number one thing that they realized is that he was not an ordinary man. He was the Son of God, God the Son. He was, he was one in ways that are too mysterious for us to understand. He was one with Father God. He was divine. That's why when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was, and he did late in his ministry, they were at Caesarea Philippi, which was a pagan city. It was a, there was a giant cave there where they actually sacrificed children. And at that point, I imagine, Jesus is looking over this scene and he says to his disciples, uh, what? who do you think people think I am? Well, some people think you're this, and some people, some people think you're amazing, and they think you're this. Who do you think I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why he said that, because Peter was beginning to realize this is not an ordinary man. That's why Thomas, when Thomas saw his hands and feet after the resurrection, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That is something no self-respecting Jew would ever say about a human being, my God. They would never do that. They didn't just admire him, they worshipped him. Second thing that these guys told us, which is equally profound, is they came to recognize that he, Jesus, was the sacrifice for our sins. That was his purpose in coming. That was his agenda. Look, the whole idea of sacrificing was something that they understood well. In fact, almost all ancient cultures performed sacrifices, and I think God used that idea as an audiovisual aid to help his people understand. He told them to perform sacrifices, and I think God, in effect, was saying to them, look, you are at odds with me. Your life doesn't line up. It doesn't work. You have not followed me. You have not obeyed me. You are not living in concert with my will. We are at odds, and we can't make that right. You've blown it. As a consequence, there has to be a sacrifice to make that right. And so he established this system of sacrifices, but there was always a problem, and everybody knew it. Everybody involved knew it. There was never really an adequate sacrifice. That's why they had to sacrifice constantly, and they did. That's also why every year they had this elaborate ceremony of national sacrifice to, to symbolize God's forgiveness. And for that ceremony, they scoured the entire country, and I mean the whole country, looking for a perfect lamb without blemish, so that they could bring him to Jerusalem to sacrifice him. And they did their best to find an adequate sacrifice, but it was never really enough, and everybody knew it. That's why they had to redo it every year. No animal could make up for human sinning. So, God sent his own son to be the perfect final sacrifice. That's what they realized. They recount these verses and these psalms and these Old Testament prophecies throughout their preaching to one another and to us for the centuries to hear and read because they began to realize, oh my gosh, we sang Psalm 118, not just us, the whole of Jerusalem, sang 118, preparing Him for sacrifice. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, not long before He died, I am the way the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
This is the, this is the only, the sacrifice is finally done. That's why Peter said in one of his speeches early, not long after Jesus died, listen to this. Jesus, Peter said, He is the stone the builders rejected. He's quoting from Psalm 118. Peter said, He's the stone the builders rejected. He's become the capstone. The one that the builders, not the enemies, the builders rejected this stone and He's become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter said. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The name is Jesus. In case you're wondering, who is this man? That's the most critical question that any of us will ever have to answer. And we have to answer. We have to decide. A few of you may have decided, he's a great guy. And you're done with it. I understand that. But you have to decide. This is a compelling figure. Some of us feel like, oh, oh, I've always believed, but that's not enough. That's too casual. You have to decide. And when you decide, you have to stay with that decision. You have to pursue it. You have to lean in regularly and constantly. Remember, a week after this great crowd celebrated Jesus' entry in Jerusalem with palm branches and, and shouts of praise and victory, a week afterwards, the crowd was calling for Him to be crucified. And where were the disciples? Well, you know the story. One of them, one of the twelve, had betrayed Him. And the other eleven, <laughs> they are nowhere to be found. They deserted Him. So, are we in that crowd? So even after our decision, I'm in, I'm all in, that's only the beginning. Then it's every day placing ourselves all in in alignment with Him. The, the ultimate and final sacrifice, the way by which you and I can finally be right with God. That's who this man is. Let's close in prayer. Now, quietly for just a moment, I'll bet you that there are some people listening to me at home or uh, there is a person or two here who has never decided. You've never said, I'm in. You've hung around religious things because of your husband or because of your wife or because of your parents. You feel guilty every time they come to visit. Or you've hung around religious things because it seemed like the right thing to do. It's great for the kids. But you've never decided. If God is stirring your heart this morning, if God is stirring your heart, that's the only way this decision will work. If God is stirring your heart, then I'd like to hear from you before you leave. So I'll be around afterwards and I'd love for you to come speak to me. And let's pray together. If you're listening to this this morning or later and God is stirring your heart, send me an email, ed at gatewaychurch.org, and we'll get together. Who is this man? That's something we have to decide about. Jesus, we worship you this morning. We bow down with our head, our heart, and our voices, and we worship you. This morning, Lord, hear us as uh, we bring all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. Uh, receive our, our praise today. Receive our shouts of victory from Psalm 118. 
and receive the meditation of our hearts as we remember, Jesus, you were not an ordinary man. And as we remember that you were the final sacrifice for our sin. Hear us. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm.